Failure at 40. Failure at 40. Can you still be fulfilled at 40? Without the partner, without the children, the career, or the beautiful home, all in the picture. Failure at 40 interviews, debates, and discusses the reality of turning 40. 40 is being sort of vivacious and not having to say anything to anyone or account for anything. Failure at 40. As I say to people, I'm my own role model. I do not need, it's not that I don't need anyone. I mean, obviously I'm influenced by other people, but at the end of the day, the buck stops with me. Failure at 40. Failure at 40 challenges the notion of failure and redefines what success looks like to you. Who says if you haven't reached all of your goals by 40 that you are not a success? Failure at 40 interviews, debates and discusses the reality of turning 40 in modern Britain. Welcome to failure at 40. Welcome back to another episode of Failure at 40. I'm Shelley, the life coach. And I'm Winnie, the producer. Today we're speaking to... Placida Ojinaka, who's 44, solicitor from North London, who is single with no children. Welcome to today's podcast. Hi, Placida. Welcome to the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Shelley. So, Placida, if I just ask you to tell us a little bit about where you're from, you know, your childhood, where you're born, family, siblings, etc. Please tell us a little bit about your early years. Okay, I'm Nigerian and Igbo. I'm the youngest of seven, eight children. Um, so pet siblings are very parental towards me because uh, I came, you know, I was basically the youngest, youngest ever that could possibly be. So there's a whole, yeah, they're very parental towards me. That's what I would say. What's the age gap between the eldest sibling and you? Um, enough for someone to be someone's uh, father. I was enough to be my father. So in that sense as well. So, and I would say uh, for me, I went to mainstream school. I, ha- I have a disability because I, I, um, what? I acquired um, polio as a child, as an infant, as a baby, basically. And uh, so that affects my mobility. And so went to school, did all the usual things that kids do, you know, stick out your leg and, and instead of like, you know, making other people fall, joking. And anyway, I didn't really do that. So I was you know, it's very, very kind of like bashful and um, to an extent a little bit cheeky as well. But I guess that kind of like helped me a little bit to survive. So I didn't actually have that thing of where some children will get bullied because of their disability or difference. So I had a lot more kind of sass or sauce about me in a sense and I think that's kind of like helped me into this ruby decade and so on and so forth so it's kind of been very helpful to have that and I think because I've had sort of periods where I've been in hospital uh, as a child and spending summer months in a cast that's itchy sweaty horrible uh you get to become sort of like okay I'm going I'm just going to learn to read and you know practice of a type of mindfulness I didn't know I was doing that like mindfulness is like a new word now but in a way reading was like a way of you know escaping that disability escaping the fact that I couldn't run around and chase after things or do things and do all the other things that kids at that age would do so I had that enrichment of a sort of reading so I didn't actually, I don't think I was born smart. Maybe I was, I don't know. But it's, <laughs> I do not know, but I do definitely believe that it was enriched in that way by the fact I read a lot and I, not just novels or um, fiction, but I read widely. So that was quite good for me. And then being bilingual also helped as well because I can understand things from a different perspective as well so I guess in terms of what informed your perspectives would you say some of your culture from home has informed who you are today I think so to an extent yeah but I think also because my dad has always been in this country sort of like came over like in the 1950s so he's always been British in that sense so so I think I didn't necessarily have a typical Nigerian upbringing per se but I had the typical thing of learning the language, learning Igbo and practicing speaking Igbo at home. I had the typical experience of eating our food, you know, so I had, you know, the Gary's, the pounded food, so on and so forth, up until a certain age anyway, so, which I stopped because I just didn't, it didn't agree with me in that sense anymore. But, um, 
So I had that kind of, you know, cultural basis of it as well. And to have that instilled mental respecting your elders and respecting cultures as well as well. But I had the advantage that I could actually challenge and ask questions. So it was slightly, it might be different to what my sisters and brothers had. So um, like I said, I'm the youngest of many. So I could, I had, I didn't have certain boundaries as such. Do you, do you think that as you um, grew up in this country that you were allowed um, to have those uh, boundaries broken? No, I think it's because my parents had this thing of where, whatever that's good for the gown is equally good for the geese. So they had this type, kind of like foreseeability, sort of, um, I would say, like a foreseeability of being very equal and fair. So they weren't necessarily going to um, say anything to say, oh, that this is how you should be or anything like that. They just let things evolve. So we're all different. Each of, each of my siblings are different, but we're all similar. And I imagine if there's been a lot of you, your parents have had a lot of practice before they got, got to you. And <laughs> yeah, I, I had no idea. I just know that I was, you know, came along sometime in the, you know, whatever decade it was. And, you know, lo and behold, I came and I took the position from the person that was much older than I am. And that person is no longer the baby. And that's it. <laughs> okay. And you said there's eight siblings, right? And you, you being number nine or eight altogether? There's eight of us, but one is no longer around. So I never met that person, but I do always acknowledge the fact that there was an eight. Uh, there was number eight. Well, there's a number before many before me in that sense. So I do acknowledge that. So I, I was also just going to ask you a little bit about um, religion. Are, are you of any particular faith or religion? And does that impact you and how you've grown up? I'm Catholic. I went to primary school, Catholic, secondary school, Catholic. I don't go to church that often, um, partly because of COVID, partly because um, I just, sometimes I feel that religion isn't always what it seems to be. And I have some, my own personal challenges with um, the Catholic faith as a whole, but I still believe in Catholicism to, to an extent. There's certain things that I don't agree with, but I believe that people should be good to people regardless of your faith or whatever you were brought up in. It's about understanding people that's good and bad in everybody as well. So that's what I kind of like believe. And as long as I'm not harming somebody, it's all good to me. <laughs> as well, and as long as they're not harming me, then that's equally good because it's all about perspectives. There's so many constructs about faith that people sort of somehow subscribe to. So it's, for me, I think, you do what you feel that is right, have something that grounds you and go with what you feel is right for you. Yes, indeed. Um, and like you say, it, it can be seen as a, a social construct. I guess everybody deserves to be able to have their own view on what they think that is without pressure from elsewhere. And, and would you say, um, Placida, that you're, because you said you, you read widely, and I think that's something that jumps back at me quite a lot. So would you say between being brought up in, in Britain um, from a Nigerian background, but reading widely that your perceptions are taken from what you've read, what you've seen, or from other factors? Definitely, it's a mosaic of all of those things. So it's a mixture of reading, listening to music, listening to the arts, appreciating, going to museums, doing all of that level of enrichment, listening to oral history as well because the things that my dad would say and listening to my uncles when they speak you know the holidays abroad and you know being with your grandparents there's nothing that beats that learning that you get from your grandparents as well that also informs things learning about what happened in the past also informs what happens in the future as well, or what is happening as well because you, you can relate to things you can sort of think how did they actually do that in that time was that actually a disease is it a new disease is it a new concept is it something new but in reality how did they actually manage what did they do you know if, if they can survive certain things why can't we how do they cope surely there must have been all these other um issues to do with i don't know say like childbirth or marriage or you know the, they're nothing new, but they've somehow they managed, you know, they coped. And so what was their coping mechanisms? Why is it no longer reflected or why is it not being reflected in that way now? You know, what's gone 
what's gone what's made it more skewered in that sense I, I, I guess that you know I, I also agree there's such a wealth in wisdom you know and and if you've got it around you should definitely take it on board and I feel like in today's society we don't always value wisdom in the way that we should do um, in terms of appreciating that culture that identity and everything that comes with those who are older than us as well right yeah there's that as well but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be able to question or challenge and say actually I don't actually agree with this or you know question be critical about things but that doesn't mean that you don't hate you don't like your culture or anything like that but sometimes you have to sort of say okay bye you know, this is not always the right thing to do, but there's an attitude about some people. Everyone always says, oh, you know, this particular culture is better than this particular culture, or this group of people are better than this. Maybe, maybe not, who knows? But you've got to sort of, how would I put it? Um, I would say that you have to somehow find what works for you, not what the society thinks you ought to do or what you should be doing or whatever else. You don't owe anyone anything. The only person you owe anything to is probably a bit of taxes and so on and so forth, but that's about it, really. As well. So you don't you don't owe anyone anything, especially when you're an adult, and so on. I think that's the other kind. I think it's different when you're sort of like financially dependent on somebody else. Then you kind of like hmm, how would I put it? Feel oh, you've got to sort of go with what they they're saying, their ways. If you live with your parents, you've got to abide by their rules. But once you've kind of like moved out, gone to uni, d- developed kind of independent thinking, and you know have a kind of a self belief in yourself, whatever, however you make your bed is how you lie on it. You know, you get on and you move up, you move. I mean, we, we talk a lot about the pressures that society has on us, um, especially during age you know, getting older and stuff, um, the things that you you think you're supposed to have in place by those ages. What would you say life was like growing up for you? Um, and what were some of those pressures for you? Or not? Okay. I didn't actually have any pressures until I went into my first proper kind of like work environment as in the um, civil service. And that's when I actually re- recognized I had a disability. Up until then, I never had like an insight that I had a disability, anything that was disabling. Yes, I walked slowly. Yes, I wore a caliper, but it was never disabling because, I mean, I was, you know, excelling, working. By the time I was, what, 25, I already had my master's. You know, I was academically able. It wasn't anything wrong with me in that sense. So my viewpoint of disability wasn't that. I just wanted to ask, so how was polio during the 80s um a disability for you like how was how did it affect or limit your life did it limit your life in any way how were you no I I clubbed I danced I did all the things that everyone else would possibly do I didn't have any limitations that's what I maybe because in my family we were probably a little bit more progressive I didn't have any like barriers or things like that I had my friends that I could just you know hang out with and do things with and did all the things that was I was supposed to do and everyone was really accepting of it you didn't have people that you felt like discriminated against you as a kid no I still had detention I still went I still got detention so there was no favoritism or anything like that no I think the only thing that was probably uh advantageous was sometimes I would leave some classes early to go in secondary school would be to leave class a little bit early like five minutes before to get to the next class so it gives me time I don't know what it was like for for me I didn't have that conception of being disabled because I don't think anyone really saw me as disabled so you were already challenging some of the norms anyway from from very young also you said that your family were probably quite progressive so therefore you weren't exposed from too young to things that might um make you feel like you weren't just like everybody else and I guess that's why you lived your life just like everybody else I mean it's almost the same as having different color hair or different color eyes isn't it really that's what that's all it is isn't it yeah it was it's just oh yeah she walked slowly and so what so do lots of people right so do lots of people yeah but I had a big mouth to save me in that sense do you understand so <laughs> I had that cheek I had that you know that cleverness that smartness to come back with some kind something that was witty to get back at anyone so if anyone was going to challenge me my God got to them. Yes, yes. So, so they forgot about everything else. <laughs> yeah, so it was like, well, you can't sort of like, you know, you, there's no way you're going, you're going to mess with me in that sense because at the end of the day, I'll, I'll outsmart you. 
And that's the thing I always <laughs> say to people. I always say to people, just sometimes you need to be quiet sometimes and let things happen because eventually somebody will, you know, ring themselves in and get themselves into trouble. So eventually it happens. So no skin off my nose, but just don't, just because I might seem quiet doesn't necessarily mean I'm quiet. I can't imagine anyone would describe you as quiet, Bashida. I'm very shy. I am extremely shy. <laughs> I am very, very shy to some people that who don't know me well. They will think, oh, she's very shy, very tame, and very, you know, malleable. And they see the gorgeous smile, and they're just like, she's lovely. <laughs> oh, no, because some, I think sometimes, I think for some people, it's a bit of a paradox for them as well, because, again, like, going back to what I said about going into the proper work stream and having my first proper career job, it was very daunting to go into a structure where people are very uh, institutionalized. If I, if that's the right word, people have come in from like a rank and file kind of position to go in. I came in with into junior management within the civil service uh, and it was, she got it because she was disabled. Okay. So it was like, Oh, it's the quota thing. And I never ever thought that I would be a quota. And I, I don't necessarily, I mean, I don't actually agree with quota to some extent for disability, but I do in a way. But I just couldn't sort of like understand what happened in work and, and in that sort of, um, in the civil service service because I thought, okay, civil service will be like a good place to, that will, you know, embrace all, equalities, fairness, and so on and so forth. And, you know, they wrote the policies, didn't they? So I thought, oh, you know, it'd be a good place to sort of start off and, you know, do what you need to do. I've never had a more challenging experience in my life. Could you describe what was happening for you during during that workplace and that position? Oh, gosh. Um, People, I had some staff members swearing at me. Okay, I had uh, my own line manager telling me that, oh, it, was a, it wasn't like a foregone conclusion that I would pass my probation. And there were things that were, when it came to uh, style of management, people would say, oh, she's not doing that, et cetera. Or there were like little things that were, when you look at it, look at it now in hindsight, that was bullying. You would sort of tantamountly just basically say that was bullying and it was coercive in a different way as well so and you know you'd be thinking like okay I have to do this because I I need to you know do what I need to do to pay my rent do what I need to do uh be able to get my experience for while I was studying as well and do all of that and it was just the fact that somebody didn't actually recognize you you got that job because you before you go into the civil service into management whether junior or otherwise you have to go you have to pass tests so it wasn't like I just got there like oh yeah you're just going to get it because you've got a disability no there wasn't so much scope for reasonable adjustments as there are now so it wasn't necessarily oh you know you're going to get extra time I've never had extra time for exams or anything like that until probably like later on like um, um, sort of more later exams that I've had but when I was doing my CPE and uh, my legal practice I don't think no, I don't remember having like extra time for anything like that so again I just didn't understand what the challenges were at work in the workplace in that particular establishment that framework so I stayed in the civil service for seven years but I stayed there for partly because I was a well I converted to law so I did the CPE which is the common professional exam which I think is now the postgraduate diploma in law or the equivalent of and I was doing that part time, so working full time and work and studying at weekends, and going into somewhere, going into a section or an area of, that was like completely alien to me was very hard. But it was a challenge. It was good. So in, in a different sense, it was um, one of those things that I like to set goals and um, I like to do things that challenges me. So I wasn't exactly, you know going to see it as a negative it was good it was it kept my it kept me busy in that sense how did you get around 
those scenarios that you found yourself in? How, how did you overcome those challenges? What did you do in your role to, to, to be able to get up and go to work the next day and, and, and carry on justifying your presence there? I knew what I was. I knew my worth. I knew my truth. So I based it on the, I had that good anchorage of knowing, hold on a second, if I can go to secondary school, if I can go to live outside of London for my um, university life, live in two different parts of uh, the country on my own, this is absolutely nonsense. So I didn't have that. It just, for me, it was a very, somehow I was a little bit more stoic and a lot more, I don't know whether it's resilient. I was just, but it's just something in me made me get up and say, fine, I needed to do that. And I, the whole thing was that, okay, fine. I need to have enough experience for, you know, the future career. So I was actually thinking long-term that this is just a means to an end. I was not going to be there longer than I needed to be. So it was never going to be a permanent job ever. It was never going to be a permanent career. It was not for me. It was just a means to an end. I just did what I needed to do just, just to survive. I wasn't rude to anybody. That's something I would not do unless you, uh, yeah, I wasn't rude to my managers or anything like that as well. So, and the irony of all of this is that there are some people that I, I have um, like almost 20 years of friendship from, from that place. And even um, previous staff that who later came back and said to me that actually, no, they were really unfair and um, to me etc and some of them have become good friends there's there's something you have to I don't know I think sometimes people just become not sheep I wouldn't say that but just I think people have this kind of fluid thing where they just follow they go they just follow and without actually analyzing or criticizing and then later on they actually kind of like wake up and when I wake up I'm just there to because I don't have to bear grudges because it wasn't really their fault was it in a, in a sense. And for me, I just feel like life, my name is uh, peaceful. So why do I need to stress myself about things? Eventually, it's all going to come to roost. I think you're very generous in your um, uh, perspective of, of their attitude, because we are sheep, but I think that we take, should take responsibility of, as sheep for, for how we treat other people. And, and perhaps if someone else who wasn't as strong as you are, um, had gone through that, that might have changed um, their whole life and, and the direction of their career and, and how they generally... Oh, definitely, it would do. I mean, I can I, I can see that for some people that it would have been a lot more, if they didn't have the anchoring that I've had and the grounding that I have and that ability to sort of like not bear things in, um, not to bear grudges. Because I think the worst thing that you can do to yourself is to carry baggage that you don't need to carry. You know, it's not necessary and it weighs you down. And if I spent all my time crying and thinking, oh, I've got to go to work tomorrow and I've got to do someone's appraisal, they're not going to like what I'm going to say or what comes. But if I kind of like think, oh, well, I'm going to do this appraisal, it's work. I'm going to do it because eventually I'm leaving this place. Um, eventually I'm going to be a lawyer at some point, some stage, don't know what, which stage I would have gone through, whether it's the barrister or solicitor, but at some point I was going to be a lawyer. So I'm going to be leaving and this is just going to, I'm going to suck that bitter lemon a little bit and move on from it as well. But I'm not going to retaliate on the person because they may have their own issues they may not have that level of understanding they may not have that enrichment I've had they may not be I'm not trying to say that it's that they're not cultured either but they've had their own experiences and their own understanding of life so I had that kind of like what was it you said earlier on wisdom to sort of like you know be able to I don't know just not be bogged down by all those other things just for me it was just yeah you, you've got to do certain things and I did it I think what I want to say, Placido, is similar to what Winnie was just saying, is that it's, it's really commendable the way that you've, you've kind of articulated that because um, workplace struggles are not to be underestimated in how they impact us then, long term. Um, a lot of people, some of the, the stresses they have at work, they bring into their own family lives that impacts their mental health, you know, means impacts their physical well-being in so many different ways. And, and you've dealt with 
what sounds like it, it was pretty awful on, on, on lots of different occasions, but you've kind of put it to us in quite a positive, positive way of learning what's, what's happened there and moved on from it. Yeah, I've had that. But I mean, worst point was where a staff member basically, uh, you know, said that they were going to kill me. And that was when there was, how would I put it? That's when they sort of like took notice that senior management actually properly took notice of what was going on. So what, what, kind of, what, kind of, what kind of department were you working in? I can't say what department. I'm still, sort of, I'm still bound by the Official Secrets Act. But, um, yes, I get you. I get you. Like I said, there were people that came in from rank and file and sometimes they felt that certain jobs were theirs and whatever reasons. And some people just felt that they could. They kill you. Yeah, I, that's why I'm trying to wonder what what kind what kind of department are we in? <laughs> was it the army part of the civil service? What what part? No, it wasn't. It was within the court service. But the point is, is that there were those kind of threats that were made to me as well, and that was it was a lengthy investigation. Do you think a lot of this is about people being a lot of different things? Whether it's just discrimination at work, bullying at work, is it because people are uneducated about? Whatever their concerns are, what what exactly do you think their problems were? What were some of the challenges that they were outlining as as why they felt they had a strength? I think that in my in that instance, I came into a job that somebody else was already doing, and that person didn't actually pass their exams at the time to get into that role. So I think I came in on a steep hurdle where I had to a learn how to be a manager. Nobody learns how to be a manager. B manage someone who wants the role as well that wasn't necessarily going to be kind to you or help you along the way. So that didn't help. And then if your manager was earmarking that particular person for that job and you have, you feel like you're the outsider. So I was always going to be an outsider. I was always going to be an outsider because I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily rank and file. I wasn't, um, I was the only person, well, no, I wasn't the only person that had a disability, but I was the only woman that had a disability. I wasn't, I didn't fit into any particular clique. I don't do cliques. Never have, never will as well. And um, no, there's nothing wrong with having cliques as well, but it's just not for me as well. So, but, um, so there was all of those kind of issues as well. So that happened there in that workplace and I think in a different kind of way it maybe because I didn't necessarily deal with some of those issues it reverberated later on in another form I would say that in hindsight it's important for people to deal with a situation as it arises don't sort of like you know wait until there's a right time or whatever if something doesn't feel right say it and can you tell us a little bit about how it manifested for you later on? Um, it manifested in the sense that I started lacking confidence in myself, lacking confidence in my own abilities, lacking that anchor that I had was a little bit, became unstuck as well. So I then started having panic attacks. I then started having things that I never thought I would experience as well. So I then started hating the fact I had a disability. And so I actually noticed I had a disability and I was, blaming it for a lot of things for how you feel yeah and was this before or after you turned 40 I imagine it's probably before a way before I really was before turning 40 I mean this was like all of this happened civil service when did I leave uh I started civil service at 24 then I left I left what was it oh I left at um just about when I was just about 30, 31 as well when I left. And I'd worked in different parts of the um, civil service as a whole by that sort of time. Um, I left because I'd finished my LBC and I'd decided, okay, I wasn't sure what I want to do with myself, et cetera. So and it was just, I no longer really saw myself being there in, in a sense. So what did I... So I think the changing point came in when I was at 10, 30, 31, and I sort of made that decision, okay, I need to, what am I going to do for the next sort of 10 years? How am I going to 
survive? Who's going to look after me? What am I going to do to look after myself to make sure that I can always look after myself? So I had to think, ooh, what career pathways? Getting the training contract was a long process. Didn't happen as I wanted or whatever. And so I, I tried to think, okay, what should I do? I decided to do social work. And... Um, <laughs> That old chestnut, eh? <laughs> well, yeah, I figured, okay, fine. You know, that, uh, you know, being a disabled person, I don't see a lot of people who have, who have disabilities as such going into the profession. And I thought, okay, well, since social work is all about, you know, helping people and understanding people and ma- making things okay for people, I thought, oh, that would be a really good sort of area to go into. And, you know, if the law career doesn't... Uh, happen I still have something to fall back on and how was that journey for you on social work was a breeze it was so it wasn't that it was a breeze but it was very um how do I put it it was quite a relaxing course in that sense I found it relaxing um I never had any like problems with it per se in that in a way I don't know I don't think it was too much too problematic the only problem was when it came to placement so I was still, you know, had my aspiration. I still had my, um, I still had my kind of like, what's the word? Uh, aspirational goals in the sense that I still wanted to be that lawyer as well. And yeah, yeah definitely I was going to be a solicitor. That was definitely going to happen one way or another. It was still in my head there, but at the same time I knew I needed to eat. So social work was going to be the other sort of fallback yeah. kind of thing. So it was so, just a matter of when. When, yeah. And so basically in July 2011, no, I think it was yeah, May 2011, I saw this advert with um, the Lawyers with Disabilities um, Division at um, Law Society. And I thought, okay, this is, this seems a bit kind of like interesting. You know, let me um, look at this, um, what they're looking at for this particular local authority. And I thought, wow, okay, you know, I kind of like dithered, mm, do I really want to do this? Am I sure? Mm, procrastinated a little bit more, mm, tossed it aside, gave up, applied, you know, and said, okay. Then like, what, I was, I think the, a couple of hours before the closing date and closing hours, I just thought, okay, I'll do this application form. Did it. Uh, got called to interview, went to the interview very late. Okay. Um, not a testimony for anyone else that's going to interviews that always turn up well, on like, time t- t- turned up late Placido or you just um, I don't know what was late how late I was late I was late not a habit but I was late so um, but um, I did the best thing I could possibly do when I got to the interview was that I smiled and I apologised and explained that there was reason to do with parking and so on and so forth. So that was that. But at least I was honest about it because it's always good to be honest and hopefully um, dazzled them with a smile or something like that. And also dazzled them with the knowledge. Failure at 40. Failure at 40. Plus, are you... Talk to us through how you tried to navigate your career and the obstacles you came up against and, and how you pivoted. But was you always um, uh, aspiring to become a lawyer? Like, do you think back to like your early 20s, mid-20s? Yeah, I aspired to be a doctor. So my first degree was in biomedical science. Oh, well, wow. That's completely different. I changed career pathways because I decided after my master's that I didn't want to be in a lab. I couldn't, I, I kind of like considered my disability a lot more. And I thought in terms of would I want it to be standing for too long? Would I want to do, you know, what, where did I actually see myself with um, medicine or anything like that? And I couldn't afford it as well. And I thought, well, should I go back home? Should I go, where should I do it? And I just thought it's too expensive. It's not always going to be conducive. Nigeria is not always the best place to go for studies if you have a disability so it was never going to be that option so I decided okay that for myself rather than um, do something that I could afford so which is why I went into the civil service so that I could pay for myself to go to do my um, CPE rather than have to depend on anybody in that sense. So you, so you thought you might be a doctor back then so in your early 20s? Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't necessarily get the prerequisite um, A-level grades at the time, but I still 
have that hope as well. So, and what about um, marriage? Did you think you'd be married with kids? Um, did you did you think about where you might live in the world and and what your might, life might be like? What what were you aspiring towards? I never really sort of like getting married or anything like that as such. No, it was never really like my. I, I always thought, okay, it will happen at some point, but it was never something I thought about in my twenties or in that sense, I was too sort of career focused too, yeah, too career focused too. like, you know, I've got to be independent regardless. Uh, maybe it's because I've seen, maybe it's, it's because I've sort of like seen TV shows and other things where it's kind of like, Oh, good for you to have your own, thing before anything happens because relationships can be very very unpredictable and I've seen situations where um where okay where I've worked in a refuge domestic violence where women have been left powerless because of they don't have their own finances or they didn't understand their finances or anything like that so that to me was like I don't ever want to be in a position where I would be dependent on another person for basic things so that was something that drove me. So I wasn't, whether there was somebody in a relationship with me or not, it was neither here nor there. You know, it wasn't because of whether they were wealthy or not, or it was never going to be anything like that not for me. As long as I was able to look after myself, that's what mattered. I was just going to ask if, if you felt there was any external pressure from everyone around you to assume um, the ethical I think for me, because I had a disability, nobody sort of like, you know, bothered me in that sense. I didn't have that pressure in that sense. I never really, it never sort of came up in a conversation. It will happen when it happened. What were your expectations for yourself, Placida? What was your expectations? What would you, what would you have liked? My expectations for myself was that um, at some point, maybe in like in my late thirties, I would have children, but um I never really sort of like put it there because I always had children around me. So I never missed not having children. So I, you know, my nieces and nephews grew up with me in that sense. So I didn't, I didn't have this sort of maternal instinct. There's, I mean, I'm maternal enough, but I didn't have that whole thing of, oh, I want to have a child. Did, did you feel like um, your career was the thing that, you kind of saw for your future, whereas maybe not necessarily children, partner, wasn't necessarily something you saw in your future? Is that what you're kind of saying? Uh, yeah, I didn't really see it in that way, no. I didn't, didn't sort of like visualise it. And what, what made that less of a, a want than your career? Um, I think looking at it in a practical sense, I just thought if I was to bring up a child on my own, Again, I've always had this thing that relationships are never, ever stable. I didn't think it would be fair on a child to bring up a child in a way that I couldn't look after that child safely myself or carry a child if the you know, children run and do things. I don't have that uh, physicality to do that. So it, it never, if, if it's something that's going to kind of like, it's not attainable, I just dismiss it because there's no point in wasting energy on something that was not going to be practical for me so being a pragmatic kind of person it wasn't for me in that sense I was you know I'm godmother to many I have lots of nephews I was never without children I never had that whole thing oh oh, I've got to maternal instincts no I mean I have them but not in that sort of sense that I've got to have a child myself it was never anything like that I could see the practical sides of it for me in that sense so does that vision feel different when you're maybe in a relationship? Do you feel like when you're in a relationship, that vision alters a little bit depending on how that, how that works? I guess it depends with who you are in a relationship with. So it depends again, if you are with someone who's just a hookup clan or an associate or something like that, then no, you don't want to invest in terms of having anything biological to make you together with that person. No, but I guess if you are lucky or fortunate or whatever it is, what, I don't know whatever the description is because I don't think everyone that gets married is lucky. Um, not that, it's a, you know, I just yeah. don't think <laughs> as well. But, you know, if you want that fairy tale Disney effect, yeah, or la-di-da-di-da, et cetera, on, you know, whatever. 
I don't think it's always what you think it is. And, and so you've got to sort of think, what happens if that person is no longer there? How are you going to raise that child? How are you going to provide for that child? What are you going to do? What happens in those kind of, you know, those layers of things that don't sort of come to plan, things that don't go to plan? What if your child is premature? What if you need that extra time for work, from work? What if, like, you know, like nowadays there's lots of um, children who develop autism. How do people cope with that? You know, and sometimes their partners leave them. So again, where's that emotional crux? Where's that emotional support? You know, you have to think, if you're going to be bringing in a child into any relationship, whether you are raising a child yourself, whether you're in a committed relationship, or even if it's a flaky relationship, you've got to think what is going to be in the best interest of that child long-term was. And children, no matter what, whether old or young, they need your time. They need you to be there uncommitted to them unconditionally regardless or even if you're having a bad day yourself you've got to be there for them you've got to be that positive rock that foundation for them because that's where their basis is going to be from yeah you you to me you sound like somebody who's very considerate very forward thinking and responsible and accountable enough for the lives that you know we bring into the world and quite often and i'm making a sweeping judgment here some people do not plan for their children, their children arrive, right? Um, and, and they may not be the best parents in the world, let's say. They might have lots of challenges, lots of struggles. And I guess, and I guess what I'm trying to say is there's very few people who might think as far, far ahead as you are, which is, is, is sensible because there's a lot of people who have children and then are not, don't have the capacity to do what they need to do for them. And they've not thought about that be- before they've arrived, maybe just because of the way that they have arrived anyway. Um, do, do you think some of the way that you've, you have thought has maybe stopped you from maybe having children because you kind of feel like you're not in the right place or the right person? No. No, it's just I feel, no. And I, I think also, I think my children, when I, if and when I have children in the future, if, um, I think that they would actually be spoilt because they'll have so many grandparents. So that would never really be like in terms, and they'll have people that will look after them in terms of, you know, like um, I think since I went into the Ruby decade, I would sort of like say that uh, thinking of children in a sort of more realistic kind of way is something that I would probably, I am actually thinking, oh yeah, maybe in the future, you know, it's something that I could put back into that goal, into that sort of, uh, okay, yeah, I might want to have some children. I might adopt, I might foster you know, in that sense. So there's those kind of things that are kind of like, there. it's there, but it's not necessarily a do a must all. It's not something I'm going to sort of um, say, oh, I haven't done this. I won't let it sort of stop me because I've, I've been lucky enough to have lots of nieces and nephews. And also that you haven't decided that because you're in your 40s, you, you have to limit yourself to just having your own children like I don't think there's many people who get to 40 and look at the other options they're just kind of disappointed in the fact that they haven't had their kids naturally and um like end their their dreams or ambitions of of being a mother then so I think it's important that people remember that there are other ways when you're in your 40s of of being a mum and and exploring those two oh definitely there's so many different ways and you know, you can be a surrogate, someone can be a surrogate for you. So many things as well. So you could meet someone who has children, you become an instant mom. You know, that's if the child likes you. But anyway, <laughs> but, you, know, but, you know, there's so many opportunities. And I think people kind of like blink at themselves or sort of like stymie themselves and limit the, their opportunities. And once you kind of like hit 40s, you don't, you shouldn't limit yourself. You should just think, okay, well, tomorrow I've got to grow. I'm going to grow in it. Each day you learn. You embrace things. Some things don't often work out, but you still have to move on. You still have to look for those opportunities and you need to take those opportunities when they come, you know, but you need to seek them out actively. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to stay in bed and sweet FA happens. Nope. You've got to be active about it. Be proactive about it. Look for those uh, opportunities. How would you describe what 40 looks like to you now? And do, do you have any regrets at all? 
40s wearing red lipstick at eight at nine o'clock at night, okay, or quarter past nine. 40s wearing being sort of vivacious and not having to say anything to anyone or account for anything. 40s about understanding who you are, being able to say what you want, not having to think that oh, there's a prescribed way that you need to be. 40 is fabulous. It isn't a failure. It's nothing like that. It's actually full of fortitude, full of fortune, full of everything that you could think of that is fabulous about it. All the Fs, all the good Fs. All the Fs, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's, I would say, I actually would say it's a lot, very, very progressive as well. So when you're in your 40s, you should just basically think, wow, you got to 40s and it's just like, you still look the way that you do. So, you know, some people might think you, you're a certain age, you know, you can still pass a 30, you can even in some places pass what, 20s, late 20s as well. So, you know, so at the end of the day, you know, you're at that stage in life where it doesn't matter. Okay. And it's, you get on with what you need to do. You don't owe anyone anything. No one needs to say, no one. I think sometimes you get these questions from aunts and uncles who are a little bit too precocious and they'll say oh you know what 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 are you doing with your job what are you doing what is it that you're doing you're like auntie i'm working that's what an adult does and but you know that they're fishing for a little bit more they want to sort of like compare you with the joneses and and so on oh and you know and i'll say oh i don't know you have to ask them or you know they'll they'll be all of those kind of fishing questions and and you just basically smile nicely and just say, oh, auntie, that's fine. I'll get back to you soon. Or, you know, or, you know, you just let it be. But as long as you don't actually, you haven't said anything, but you're still polite to them. Auntie, I'll get back to you soon, yeah? <laughs> yeah. You know, I'll get back to you soon, you know, okay. Or thank you, auntie, for wishing me well, you know. Or, you know, whatever it is, but just always turn it into a positive. Don't ever just let, let them think that it's, uh, it's something that is sweet that will kind of like bring you down. Because yeah. sometimes some aunties, because of their own world limitation or their own level of exposure or whatever, they tend to sort of see things from a certain perspective. So I don't actually take anything that they say of any um, importance. Difficult, though, like, when you get it a lot and you're constantly like, oh, my gosh. I, and, and you don't want to be rude to these people. You want to be polite, but but not be offended by it. It's really difficult to, to learn how to, how to handle aunties, I think. Um, I think for me, I've had like um, where people have said things in Igbo and they think that I don't actually understand or speak language. And they've said something like, as in like, so basically the one that's um, got something wrong with her leg. And they've said it in the context of like, who's going to marry her kind of thing. And I just always like think, okay you know like you think I don't actually understand the language or understand what you're saying and I just feel like wow if only you knew you know you you don't know how free I am and how much freedom I have I don't have any of those kind of like oh I need to hurry home to cook for my husband and make him moi moi or whatever it is don't have any of that no one tells me what to do or you know when to come home what I need to do I don't have any of those kind of things or Nope. You know, I have so much more freedom and, you know, it's bliss. You're actually celebrating being single as opposed to them allowing you to feel bad about it. It's something that you... Yeah, you turn it into a positive. You turn it into a positive because at the end of the day, once you've got this up here, no one can take it away. Okay, so that's the whole passive thing as well. So that's what I've always had, that grounding to know that you've got once your brain is functioning and you've got air and you're breathing... You can do anything. Nobody has that license or permission to put you down. Absolutely. And the world was a different place in, I guess, maybe in our parents' day, you know, grandparents' day, in terms of what, what 40 looked like, how much power a woman had in the household or didn't, financial power. Sometimes, you know, your credibility was all based on whether you had a man, kids or not. Whereas today, it's a very different world. And like you say, we have our own freedoms. We're living in our own homes. We're commanding our own ships and we're doing what we need to do. And, and I think um, sometimes some people who don't have that same thing need to kind of discredit you by in whichever way it makes them feel comfortable in their own little circles. That makes sense. Yeah. And sometimes you need to play the fool sometimes. As in like, it's not everything that you need to answer or 
give any attention to. You just have to be like, okay, put some water in your mouth and just swallow your water and just think, okay, I'm going to move on. Simple as. And just swish it around a little bit. Oh, of course. And, you know, <laughs> later on, discreetly go to the bathroom and spit it out if need be. But the point is, it's just move on and don't let anyone anchor you down. That's Absolutely. the reality of it in that sense, because you'll be damned if you keep on trying to do things to please people. Indeed. You know, you're damned if you please someone. You'll, you'll be damned if you don't please another person. You go left, you go right, you go center. You lose yourself. What is the essence of that? Those people that don't, while you're losing yourself, those people will not be there. Yeah, I think I better get myself a litre bottle of water. <laughs> it's good for you. Water is good for you. You know, it helps our skin. Definitely. Um, I was going to ask you, um, Placida, if you had any regrets. If, there, if you could change some stuff, what would it be? Oh, I would have gone into law straight off. That's what I would have done. I would have learned to like history. I would have learned to like essays. That's what I would have done. So definitely that's the only thing I think I would have changed. But anything else? No. Wow. So no advice for your younger self? Um, just keep challenge things a lot more sooner than later. That's what I would say to myself. Mm, interesting. That's amazing. Yeah. 40 sounds great for you. You're, you're living your best life in your 40s. What do you think 50s will look like? Do you have any aspirations for 50? It'll be golden. It yeah. will be golden. Everything will be golden. And <laughs> okay. No, seriously, it would be golden. It will be a little bit more of what I have now and actually a lot more security. And it will definitely be fabulous. I'll be probably a little bit more thinner. Uh, still cheeky. Uh, still playful, <laughs> um, still wearing a bit of a red lipstick. Uh, yeah, but it'll still be fabulous, definitely. I'm sure it will be. Yeah. Come back in 10 years' time and find out. I was just thinking, Pastor, there was a few things that you've discussed that have kind of like really resonated with me, in particular, some of the things that kind of came up for you in the working environment. And I think if I think back to some of my own working life and how things have been and I think about other people's insecurities which they then project, project onto me you know or have projected onto me and it's very easy if you you know like you say have been anchored but there's also some things that you then start to question you know and especially if you've got maybe more than one person within an organization or even outside the organization who um, are presenting very similar behaviors you know, for no particular reason. Because remember, you've not done anything. You know, you're just being beautiful, lovely Placida, going to work and delivering your position. And that's all you're doing, right? And you've got other, other people. And can I ask, were these people the same background as yourself? No. Hmm? Can I ask what backgrounds what they you? were? Okay, they were not my colour. And what colour are you, Placida? I'm black. Okay, just wondering, you know, because you see me on the podcast and all. <laughs> I'm definitely black. <laughs> okay. I'm black, okay. Um they weren't my colour. They weren't my to some extent, some of them weren't necessarily as educated as I was at the time. Um some were older than me, some were younger than me. So it was a myriad of people that were in their late teens, and people who were old enough to be my parents as well as the people that are old enough to be, you know, give or take 20 years or so older than me or 10 years or whatever it was. So it was, you know, a mixture of people. But majority of the people that were working there were not black. And I guess even though these weren't your formative years, you know, they're, they're still, you were still a young person making a way in the world, building your career, as it were. There's still visions for other things. Um, and we just think about how these things do formulate, however small, parts of our psyche and how we feel about ourselves later on and our envisions. And it sounded like you still, you still had your goals in place, but either way, they had kind of like just unnerved or unsettled you a little bit. Yeah, it did get unsettled. It did get, um, how would I, it slowed down the rate, if that's the right way to put it. That is in terms of that kind of goal, you kind of like taking all that whole thing that they've transferred to you because it's a way of transference when it kind of like, Think, make you think that you're not good enough. You're not this. You're not able to do this. It's, you start doubting yourself. They place that 
you know, seed of um, doubt, not seed of hope, but that doubt is kind of becomes like, hmm, can I do this? Should I be doing this? Should I not try? Why should I try? I'm not going to get this. It's not going to work. And you, you kind of like give up in that sense because you just feel, okay, well, it's, it's going to be the same mode, same mode. Um, you go for an interview, there's going to be someone better than you, but they're not actually telling you that the reason they're not taking you is for an entirely different reason. So, but again, you're not too sure as well because they don't, you know, say, oh, outright it's because you're black or you're disabled or you're female. Yes, and I guess that's what I was kind of going to come on to is, you know, when, when you're dealing with possibly institutionalised racism, you know, you're dealing with age-old organisations that you're working within, you know, and we know more and more so that particularly, not particularly, but black women are definitely, you know, experiencing these sorts of behaviours year in, year out, you know, um, and from our parents' day to now, you know, very, very little difference, you know, except maybe just the way that it manifests itself, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there was one thing that I can remember is that someone said I was aggressive. And do I sound aggressive? Me, never. And it was just like, it was that typical thing of the moment a black person, a black woman in particular, says, you know, stands up for his or her rights. It's like, oh, you're shouting. You, you know, and yet you're clear, you're, you know, you are clearly speaking really, really good English. You are very, you know, Enunciating the word, she is articulating herself. It's like, how dare she? And it's like, it's like, um, you know, yeah, you're not even your voice is not even elevated in any, you know, it doesn't even go up an octave or anything whatsoever. But somehow they find it very challenging. Where and the whole thing was because I always went back to policies and procedures. I always said to them, your policy doesn't say this or that. Therefore, I'm right. So I always say to people. Arm yourself, no matter how boring it gets, wherever you find yourself, get the policies and procedures that will protect you as well. Learn it, you know, read it, and so that therefore you don't get into a position where um, you have to have unnecessary arguments with people. You just say, actually, no, this is what the policy says. You can take me to HR. You can, you know, do what you need to do, but this is what the position is. Or even the company values, just refer back to the company values. I never actually thought of that before, but you're right, because you can. No, but always go to whatever that's written, any written document that they have. Not necessarily the values, but you need something that's a lot more guided and actually structured as well. So, right. you know, your right. company's values is not necessarily something that is there. They can say, oh, we do this and that, but is it written? What's the safeguards for that? What is, where's your procedure for complaints? Right, right, right. You know, you need to have that. That has to be there. You need to understand that too for yourself so that you know how to challenge things where it's not allowed. You know, it's like now people were, people are harassed and you can say, actually, no, that's not allowed. You can stick up for your friends now or your colleagues when you see something that's affecting them. It may not be affecting you directly, but you can actually stick up for them and say, actually, no, I'm going to raise that complaint. That was bullying. That was racism. That was another form of discrimination. I was also going to ask you a little bit more about your work in the refuge. Um, uh, there was something that you said that I thought was quite interesting just about what, what you saw in the refuge. Oh, that shook me in terms of what I saw. I was working in a refuge in um, somewhere in London anyway. And what I experienced in terms of what from the women's stories, their accounts of what they went through. I do not want anyone to ever go through any kind of pain in that form. And some women were battered. Some people, some women had no recourse to public funds. Some were brought into this country. They barely had anyone around, no family, no relatives, no friends. They were isolated. Um, and they were damaged. They became damaged. And the kind of pain for a woman to start picking themselves up, it's a lot. It takes a lot of strength for a woman to come to a refuge. It takes a lot of strength for a woman to go out and think, hold on a second, I'm not going to stay in this you know, situation anymore. And people need to respect that. People need to respect that. And it's like sometimes people will think, oh, yeah, you know, she's left the kids. Sometimes they have no choice to leave their children. 
because of that particular situation that's been put upon them. You know, some get their children back later on once they're, you know, in a different situation and a little bit more settled, but it's harrowing as well. I think maybe that's probably kind of like maybe not want to be in a situation where I would be, you know, someone would try to tame me or, you know, a man would try to tame me or try to control me. I'll be like, what is it you're trying to control? Well, that's why I was coming to with my, my question to you around that was more about just the impact of just you working in the refuge, the impact that it then had on some of the decisions you made in terms of how you um, wanted things to be before you entered into a situation in case it could for any reason ever end up in this kind of way, um, which, ma- which makes sense. Yeah, I think I was also being, um, having had that kind of experience, I was also kind of like mindful again with the disability I didn't want to be in a position where someone would sort of like see me as weak and see me as somebody that they could easily like, you know, play with in that sense. I may not, you know, I was never ever going to be that person in that way, but I guess in a different kind of way, people sort of think, Oh yeah, we'll do this for her and whatever. No, I didn't need you to do that. There's taxi cabs. Nowadays there's Uber and I drive myself. So it wasn't, there was never, a need for me to think, oh, I've got to rely on somebody. So I think in a way, I think for some men that I've met in the past, they feel kind of like intimidated by me because I was never really needed them in that sense. I never needed them. I never needed them. And I think the only thing I ever needed them for was just time and quality. But it was never because you're going to buy me what? Okay, I'll buy it myself. Or because you're going to do this. Nope. It was never really, for me, it was never that. It was just, I wanted that person's time, comfort. That was it. It was never, it's not amazing. It's just, I don't know whether it's amazing or not, but I think it's just more who I've become or whatever it is. Maybe if I, you know, met the right person, I don't know, 18, 19, whatever age, or something like that, my views would have been different. Or maybe if I wasn't disabled, things would be different. Or or if I didn't always feel that I needed to protect myself and make sure that regardless of whatever happened, I was always going to be able to stand. Absolutely. And I guess for me, what, 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 what's amazing is that you know what you want, you know what you're going for and it's clear. And, and, and I think that's not always a given. And I don't think it should be taken as something that everybody is quite firm in being and knowing. But you also have to understand who you are as a person. Indeed. Okay, because before you can commit to any relationship, you've got to know what you bring to that relationship. You've got to know what can you tolerate as well. Because I think that's the other thing that a lot of people, when they go into relationships, regardless of age, especially, actually, I think from when you're in like in your 30s and 40s and 50s, whatever relationship you go into, you need to go in wide eyes. Don't just go in with, oh, he's going to be so lovely or she's going to be so lovely and all of, you know, all, you know, fairy tale. No, ask those questions, you know, question things, something niggles you, talk about it, you know, talk about it together, you know, discuss, talk, keep on talking. And if, it's, and if the conversation is not going the way you want to go, say, okay, fine, it's not working. But it doesn't have to be acrimonious. It doesn't have to be hateful or anything like that. Sometimes relationships don't work. You know, and this is it. And, and, it's, and it's okay if so it doesn't work. And that's the other bit, isn't it? Absolutely okay. Yeah, absolutely okay. And, you know, and I think sometimes I think some people need to understand that they live in a different society and a different culture and whereby um, you're not, I think it, it might be different. Like if I was living in Nigeria, the concepts or certain or living in certain kind of, or if I didn't come from a certain family, things will be different, but here you have so much more freedom. You know, in the UK, you, there's nothing, you know, you can be single, you can be whatever you want to be. You know, there's no, there's no prescribed way of how you should be as an adult. And the whole thing is that everyone is born alone. And at some stage in life, you will be alone. Your kids will grow up and leave. That's the natural order of life. So being alone or being single, it doesn't have to be like, oh, gosh, you know, go away. She's single. No. I I agree. And um, I also think it's okay. And I think whatever society makes us feel isn't okay. Actually, it's up to you what you think about it. 
and it's all subjective, you know, and I think the, the more I listen to you and, and hear what you're saying, I think you, you already know that actually you're the champion of your own ship and you decide how things go. Yeah. As I say to people, I'm my own role model. I do not need, it's not that I don't need anyone. I mean, obviously I'm influenced by other people, but at the end of the day, the buck stops with me. So whatever decision that I've made for myself, it works for me. I won't say for people to be like me because some people will not, another person with polio may not be, have the same attitude or the same um, way of reasoning that I have. So I can't expect anyone to be like me. I can only, there's only one plasterer, you know, that's it. And the only thing I will always say to people, don't take away someone else's um, aspirations. If you have a goal, go for it. I will always encourage people. I'm not one of those people that will just, you know, I'm just, yeah, I, I like to encourage people. You know, so if you tell me that you're doing something, I'll be there like championing it and say, oh, come on, do it. That's me. You know, whether I see you or I don't see you or whatever, it's no skin off my nose, but as long as you are going and it's your dream, go for it. You know, that's the way I see it. There's, because at the end of the day, you don't know where anyone's destiny lies. You know, so why should I hold on to what, you know, it's nonsense. I totally agree. Thank you, Placida. That's a nice note to end on. Placida, I really admire your energy, your attitude, resilience, and to to all the experiences you've had in life. Um, And I'm I'm really inspired by your perspective of of what 40s are, and I'm going to start using uh, the term my ruby. Ruby Ruby is, yeah. (laughs) It's the best thing, yeah. Click your heels, you know, think or Dorothy or something, or something like that, and just click it and just, Go away and do what you need to do. You owe nobody nothing. The only person you are accountable is yourself. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really nice having you on. You you've really shared a lot with us and um and and not held back. (laughs) Is is there anywhere online that anyone who has listened to this podcast would like to follow you could go and find you? If you've got any meet social media handles you'd like to share. Um, I have many social media handles. Um, I have Serene Lawyer, that's Instagram, at Serene Lawyer. I also have Miss Serene Fitness, where I document food and green vegetable lifestyle and all sort of healthy, low-carb meals. It's very nice, very tasty. Mm, I'm always watching. very pretty looking. Very pretty looking as well, the food as well. So um, I used to do a little bit of poetry, but that's not so much of that. So I've not actually developed that too much. But um, I'm on Inspired by Way on Twitter as well. So I tend to tweet on issues to do with politics, law, disability, social work, uh, in particular dementia. So, And I work heavily with the lawyers with disabilities um, division with the Law Society. So if anyone is interested in that, come along and I will, you know, join along um, on the Law Society as well. So this is not a plug for the Law Society, but it's there. And sometimes you always have to give credence to what's helped you along the way. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for letting me do this. <laughs> Failure at 40. 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 Apple Apple